Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Sean Palmer. Uh, Sean has been on the podcast before us, and um, today we're talking with him about his uh, brand new book called Speaking by the Numbers, Enneagram Wisdom for Teachers, Pastors, and Communicators. However, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner, I want to tell you uh, about uh, three things, three really uh, values here of the podcast. The first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. The second one is this, is that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them uh, 100%. And the last one is this, is that we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything because everything has something to teach us. Everything has something that we can learn from. And we are falling into that third one today with one of my favorite things to learn about and learn from, and that's the Enneagram. And if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, I'll tell you a little bit about it. But the Enneagram is a personality uh, framework that helps us better understand um, ourselves. And and a lot of it has to do with, um, uh, a lot of it does have to do with, uh, or can can deal with spiritual growth, personal growth, all of that stuff. Uh, But today we're talking uh, specifically how it applies to communication. Now, if communication is something that you're interested in, um, or if you have uh, things that you would love us to cover about communication, or literally just about anything on the podcast, if there's just something that you're really interested in learning more about, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Um, And let me know kind of what you're interested in learning from. And maybe we can make that happen on the podcast or someone that you're interested in, uh, in having us um, or having me talk with on the podcast. Would love to hear from you as well. Or if you're just eager to share some of the things that you're learning, you can, you know, hit me up there as well. Now, as I mentioned, uh, today we're talking with, or I'm talking with uh, Sean. Sean was on the podcast um, over a year ago, and we talked with him about his uh, devotional at the time, 40 Days on Being an Enneagram 3. You know, all last year, I did uh, podcast episodes about each Enneagram type. And so if uh, if you're new and you didn't catch any of those, you know, for uh, ones through nines, we got them there. We got a few other Enneagram episodes as well, all linked to um, some of the previous episodes that we've done. Uh, but as I mentioned, Sean's been on the podcast and I remember when we were talking the first time and Sean was uh, telling me a little bit about this book and I just remember getting so excited about it because I love learning about the Enneagram. I love learning how to communicate uh, better and realizing or seeing the connection between the two of how we understand our, our Enneagram types and how we understand our own personalities and how we understand our own tendencies can impact our, um, our ability to communicate well with people. Um, just very much got me fascinated. And so here he is, he's back on the podcast. Now, let me tell you a little bit about him and then we'll jump into, uh, jump into the conversation. So Sean Palmer is the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston, a speaker and an executive coach. He is also the author, uh, as I mentioned, of 40 Days on Being a Three, Unarmed Empire, and a contributing writer to the Voice Bible. He is also the vice chair of the Missio Alliance Board, and he and his wife Rochelle live in Houston uh, with their two daughters. So 
without any further wait, here's my conversation about the Enneagram and communication with Sean Palmer. Well, Sean, it's great to have you back on the Learner's Corner. Well, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, you've recently, you know, by the time that this is out, uh, your brand new book, Speaking by the Numbers, is out, which is about Enneagram and communication. Mm -hmm. And I would just love to hear um, from you of maybe like the origin story of what made you want to write this book. Well, and I tell the story in the book, but essentially what happened is I was, you know, I'm a communicator for a living and primarily that happens in our local church. Uh, and I had given a sermon, part of which is in the book. And at the end of it, one of our members who I really like and respect a lot came up to me and she said, that's the most Enneagram three sermon that I've ever heard. And it just took me back. Like I was, I was thinking at that moment, like I bet all the time that I am actually not communicating to as many people as I would hope to, as I would like to. And what I'm actually doing is communicating in a way that I see and understand the world. And because I've been an Enneagram student, because I've studied the Enneagram, I had apprentice under the Enneagram and some teaching, I thought, I wonder if the Enneagram would help me to think more holistically about the presentations that I give because if you're not, I'm an Enneagram three, like you mentioned before, I've been on the show when we talked about my book, 40 Days of, on Being a Three. Um, if I was really connecting to people who saw the world similarly to me um, in the Enneagram space, that would be like three, sevens, and eights in some ways. And then folks who are also in the competency triad, and I'm missing everybody else. And that really concerned me. So it took me on this journey, a couple of years journey, of thinking through where I was missing people and how I could be a better communicator and talking with people, listening to their stories, asking them how they received messages, what landed with them, what didn't, um, led me to the conclusions I come to in speaking by the numbers, which is basically this idea of if you don't take seriously how your hearer hears a message, whether you're a preacher, whether you're in a corporate boardroom, whether you're speaking at a conference, if you're a school teacher, if you don't take seriously how they hear, how they interpret the world, how they view the world, then you're going to miss them. Hmm. Yeah, and that, that makes me think of uh, this quote that you have in the book. You know, you say, many of us will need to embrace the fact that our job is not to look and sound smart, but to help our hearers think well. And yeah. I would be curious to hear your thoughts on um, what maybe drives us internally too, because I think that might be the natural state, you know, look good, sound good, sound impressive, all of that stuff. Uh, what drives us to do that, do you think? Yeah. So every human being on the planet has one central drive that we don't talk about very often. It's not our only drive, but it's central to who we are. Everyone you've ever met has shared one thing in common is that we all want to be liked. We want to be liked by our family, the people in front of us. And so we engineer a world where we think, and this is where the Enneagram is so important, right? Um, we engineer a world 
where we think if I behave in this way, if I deploy these strategies, more people, or at least more people who are important to me will like me. And so what happens is that we begin to live out of that space in order to be liked. But what that does is that centers a particular set of people and that set of people is not all people. And if you're a communicator in any audience, you've got people who have a predominance in one of three areas, whether the first thing they do in the world is think, whether the first thing they do in the world is feel, and the, or the first thing they do in the world is do. And you're missing people if you don't take into consideration how your hearer actually hears and you center your own self being liked, mm. being yeah. respected. Yeah, and I and I love how you phrase it in the book. I think you say, uh, whenever we communicate in, a, in our own natural way without thinking about other people and other people hear us, it costs them energy to interpret us which i thought is just so, man that just clicked with me in such a in such a different way um and i would be curious to hear uh your thoughts on how what are some things that we can go to do to better lean into our our audiences you know energy and and running in sync with them yeah so the book really looks at um in enneagram language what we call stances and what stances essentially mean is that for all three, all nine numbers, right? There are three numbers who are dominant in thinking, three numbers who are dominant in feeling, and three numbers that are dominant in doing. And depending on your number your, and your dominant uh, intelligence center, which that's what those are, thinking, feeling, and doing are intelligence centers that if you can lean into that intelligence center, things feel very easy for you. So um, let's just say my, my wife, for instance, um, is a one on the Enneagram, right? So her dominant intelligence center is gut body doing, right? So if she can do something, if I'm giving a message and there's something to do at the end of it, like that's a good message for her. What she is repressed in is the, what's called the thinking center. And so if she has to strategize around something, that costs her more energy to strategize rather than just to jump in and do. So these are the kind of people who like to jump out of the plane and build a parachute on the way down, right? Um, and so what I want to do in every message is that I want something that leans into everyone's intelligence center that if you think feel or do as your dominant intelligence center it's really easy for you to wrap your arms around but i also want to offer something that is an from an intelligence center that's going to be difficult for you that's going to call on you to grow and develop um, as as a person to say like you really need to think about this so one of the things i talk about in the book for um let's just say just to stick with the same analogy the, the dependent stance which is ones twos and sixes um, um, that they are repressed in thinking, right? That you really need to think about what you're going to do before you go ahead and do it, right? Like you need to strategize, you need to plan before you hop in and do it. And then, you know, there are other 
intelligence centers, like threes, sevens, and eights who are in the, the aggressive stance. And um, we are dominant, right? In, in some ways, different ways, all of us. And then we are repressed, three, sevens, and eights are repressed in feeling, in our feeling center. Um, and, and so that means like we need to spend more time exploring how we feel about something before we jump in and do. So for people who know the Enneagram, and this gets very technical, and one of the great things um, in the book is that it comes with diagrams because you won't understand it without the diagram, is that in every stance, there's every triad. So people who know the Enneagram know the triads. Eights, nines, and ones are in the guts triads. Two, threes, and fours are in the hearts or the shame triads. Um, five, six, and sevens are in the thinking triads. So you have a triad, but in every triad, there is a stance, someone in that triad, one number in that triad represents a stance. And the three stances are dependent, aggressive, and withdrawing. So ones, twos, and sixes are in the dependent stance, which means that they are repressed in thinking. Threes, sevens, and eights are in the aggressive stance, which means that they are repressed in feeling. And um, then you have fours, nines and fives who are in the withdrawing stance, which means they are repressed in doing. And so your triad tells you of the three feeling centers, I mean, of the three intelligence centers, rather, thinking, feeling, and doing, what you're dominant in, but your stance tells you what you're repressed in, whether it's thinking, feeling, and doing. And the great thing is, Caleb, all of this is in diagrams in the book because it gets really complicated if you don't immediately have the Enneagram diagram like maps to your brain. You can you can follow it in the book because there are diagrams in the book. So I know that was really confusing, probably lost some people in that, but that's the great thing about the book is that I walk through each stance and how each triad is in each stance and there are pictures to go with it. Yeah. And I mean, I think you did a good job of just summarizing it. I mean, for the most part, we're in thinking, feeling and doing, we're really good at one, we really struggle at another, and we're kind of neutral uh, for the one or for um, a third. Um, I, w I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, from from time to time, there might be a message to where like, hey, it is it is prime, like maybe you're trying to shift like a mindset in somebody, or it's a... Um, or it's a, we have to give a message that is primarily around what might be someone's like, uh, center that is more difficult for them to struggle. I would love your thoughts on like, how do you communicate about centers that cost people more energy to pay attention right. to? Well, well, some of that, and this is particularly true in the, in the church world is that we have to change people's expectations that um, messages that we get, we might need to understand that we're going to be challenged by and that that should be um, an expectation. And some of it is as simple as acknowledging to your hearers, hey, some of you are going, are thinking dominant and you want data and statistics. You want to know how all of this lines out. Some of you are feeling dominant. And if you don't feel like this is the right thing to do or the right moment. If you can't feel it internally or pick up the feeling from other people, you're gonna struggle with it. And some of you want to do something 
um, before you even know what it is that we're doing. You just want to like, jump in. But we're going to spend some time like in all of those areas to help develop you and develop actually the speaker, right? Um, that that person who is communicating needs to think through at each level. How do I help people think about this? How do I help people feel this? And how do we instruct, guide, navigate people toward what they're going to do? And all of that is like a heavy task for a communicator. But if we don't do it, what happens in return is that we end up centering ourselves and our own personality and how we see the world and ignoring how our hearer engages with the message. And then we wake up one day and we say like, well, you know, there's either something wrong with those people, like they're not paying attention. I can't get them to get on the right page about any of this. And the thing is like, you've just not spent enough time thinking about how they interpret the world. Uh, before we jump into, you know, some of the uh, stances or anything, one thing uh, that really caught me about your uh, about your subtitle, and there may not be much to this, but uh, there might be, um, you know, you, you talk about how it's it's helping teachers and communicators and pastors learn how to speak. I would be curious to hear um, if just in your experience that you have seen any difference in how each of those types of people or each of those types of roles tend to communicate. Yeah, so the first thing I would say about that is that all of us instinctively communicate out of our number, out of, our, out of what we're dominant in, because we assume that that's how the world works, right? Everybody else is thinking the same way. Um, when you begin to lose some of that, like it's interesting to me just because I preach week to week in a local church, right? I speak week to week in a local church. What's fascinating to me is the reality of paying attention to which messages resonate with which people. And what that typically means is that I have leaned into one of the intelligence centers that people find dominant and they will come up to you and say like, oh, that was a great message. Like I really needed to hear that. And what that typically means is that you just talked to that center or maybe over talked to that center. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just this last week, I gave a message and a couple of people came up to me after and thanked me for being as vulnerable as I was in that message. And every one of those people is feeling dominant because I know them and they know the Enneagram. We've talked about it before. And I, when, I, when that happens, I think, oh, what's probably also happened is that people who are thinking dominant or doing dominant um, didn't resonate as much with the same message. So my task is now, how do I incorporate all those intelligence centers in a way that everyone feels spoken to. And like, there are some messages that are just gonna be more thinking dominant and some that are gonna be more doing dominant and some that are gonna be more feeling dominant. There's just no way to get around that. But what I'm trying to do is over time, which is the great blessing of preaching in the local church, is over time, I'm evening that out uh, somewhat so that we can have a better, more um, robust 
preaching and teaching experience in in our context. Can you talk more about that process of integrating all three into a message and kind of what that looks like? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a, in my process, and this is the process I teach to um, my speaking clients because I, I coach speakers. One of the things I'm asking more and more now is that where is my, where is my feeling section? Where is my thinking section? Where is my doing? section. I want to at least bare minimum make sure that I'm touching all of those intelligence centers in one message. And so for people who preach every weekend or maybe you teach a Bible class, at some point you're going to have to do some exposition. Like you're just going to have to explain what's going on in the text. That's a great time to do your thinking center. And if you want to incorporate statistics, data from the rest of the world like that's a great that's a great time to do that but you also have to make people feel that message they can't just think a message and then you have to give people something to do i was in south Bend, indiana preaching not long ago and at the end of it you know someone came up to me and they were very complimentary about the message and then he asked me but what are we supposed to do right uh, and my answer to that, because I am feeling dominant, like is my answer to that is, what do you think you should do? Because I'm the kind of person, like I don't want to prescribe for other people what they ought to do and how God is speaking to them. But again, I noticed like, okay. And this was the first service at that church. So I said, you know what? In second service, I need to make sure there's a clear call to action for people because I miss that guy and because I missed that guy, I know that people who are dominant in doing didn't get as much out of that message as they could have. So it's just the process of asking myself, is there thinking in this? Is there feeling in this? Is there doing in this? And if it's not, before I stand in front of a group of people, then I need to go back and make sure that I've incorporated into a message thinking, feeling, and doing. Mm. Uh, let's, start, let's dive into the, the stances because there's some specific things that I want to touch on. Um, so for the dependent stance, um, and I guess before that, I just want to say, I your, your definition of thinking repression helped me understand thinking so much better because they're just so tied uh, to mm -hmm. the present moment, you know, in ones, twos, and sixes. Uh, mm -hmm. But one of the things that you say is that um, they can get lost in the weeds a little bit and right. lost in, in the details of stuff. And so um, we need to help them see the better picture. As a communicator, what does that look like for you of helping people in that dependent stance see the bigger picture? Yeah. So um, folks who are in the dependent stance who are um, repressed in their thinking, um, what that looks like to me is highlighting the pause. And what I mean by that is they want to hop into doing something, but what can often happen is that they do something without thinking about or strategizing. And, and, and thinking repression is not to mean 
people don't think because every number on the Enneagram, we all do all three. We all think, we all feel, we all do. It's about what gives us energy, what costs us energy. Thinking mm -hmm. costs dependent stance people more energy than do it. That's, a, that's all that we're saying in those stances. So it's not like yeah. you don't think, you know, or you don't feel, or you, it just costs us more energy. So before you go out to feed every homeless person in the city where you live, right? How are we going to do that? What's the strategy? What are the resources that we need? Who are the partners that we need to bring alongside? Um, what are the problems that we might face or could anticipate versus let's go feed everybody. I'm going to go to the store and buy a bunch of food, which is what a person in the dependent stance would think. And also a person in the depend dependent stance, and the way I define it in the book is seeking guidance from outside of yourself. So that is ones, twos, and sixes. Um, before, like they will seek the guidance of everyone in the universe outside of themselves. Because my wife is a one, um, we see this all the time. And the way that shows up with ones, twos, and sixes often are questions. Um, my wife, who I love, and I use her as an example because I do love her and we have been married for a quarter of a century and that's never gonna change. We're gonna be married forever. Um, she will constantly ask me questions. She will constantly ask me questions about how I think, right? Um, and that's her dependent stance because she is seeking guidance from outside of herself about what to think, about how to strategize. Sixes do the same. Um, people get very frustrated in meetings where like someone like me, three sevens and eights or aggressive stance, we have a ton of ideas. We're ready to go and do something. We're feeling repressed. And once twos and sixes come along and ask us all these questions, and like that is so life draining to us. Um, and they're asking questions not because they're trying to be, um, because they're trying to slow things down or be a problem, but because that's how they think is by working through with other people um, what to do because that's not something that they do instinctively on their own because it costs them so much energy. So you get a lot of questions from ones, twos, and sixes about how to navigate the thing that you're trying to do uh, because they are you, they are asking you to help them do their thinking for them. Um, when other groups, um, especially like the withdrawing types, um, the last thing they want is you to help them do their thinking. Like they've done their thing on their own because they're thinking folks who are, you know, um, five, sixes, and sevens, like they do their own thinking. And Caleb, this is where it gets really complicated and I want people to see the diagrams in the book. <laughs> Those, because I just said something that's going to be very confusing to people if they don't see it visually. Threes, sixes, and nines are dominant and repressed in the same intelligence center. For threes, that's feeling. For sixes, that's thinking. And for nines, that's doing, right? And uh, Helen Palmer's work on this is really good. I explain it a little bit in the book. Um, so if you're a three or six or a nine and you're wondering, or if you're married to one or you have a child that's a three, six or a nine, 
and you're going, how can you be depict, how can you be dominant and repressed at the same center? I explain that in the book, and it's not as complicated as it sounds, but I just needed to name it. Yeah, I was, and as a fellow as a fellow three, it is a very real thing too. Right. <laughs> uh, um, I want to go back to. Uh, to, you mentioned uh, ones, twos, and sixes, you know, constantly asking questions. As a communicator, how does that impact how you create messages and speak? Right. So as a communicator, one of the key things that we all need to do is anticipate objections. And if you look at, and this is why extemporaneous speech, or I wrote this sermon on Sunday night or prepared this class for my fifth graders the night before, this is where you get in trouble because you don't have time to anticipate objections. And you really need to anticipate objections because you can speak to those in the moment. If someone disagrees with this point, how am I going to overcome that objection? And that has to be a part of what you talk about when you communicate and not enough of us do that. So one of the things that I think through is that if I did not believe any of this, if I don't buy into the premise, what would I say in response? And as you start to unpack some of that, it becomes easier to communicate because now what you've done is you've gotten out of your own head and gotten into the head, the mind of your hearer which is what all of this is about, is about trying to get into the mind of your hearer so that you can craft more effective messages. Another thing that you talk about, uh, particularly as it pertains to the, the dependent stance and, you know, ones, twos, and sixes, is, um, is it can be challenging for them to examine their own personal narratives as well and like some of their thinking pat their thinking patterns and some of the beliefs that they have so what has like what have you learned about how to engage people to think about their the narratives that they're telling themselves yeah, yeah so crucial in that process and one of the things i write about in the book for for those in the dependent stance is the importance of questions asking questions and asking questions in a non-threatening way like as they narrate the events that happen in their lives to ask questions about, okay, like when this happened, what do you think was going on? Or is there another, is there an alternative interpretation of this series of events that maybe you haven't thought of? Um, is that really what happened? Or is that what it feels like happened? So if you can get into a pattern of what if kinds of questions, what if she missed, what if he missed, what if your boss was trying to say, what if, and what that does is slowly draw people out and begin to, to encourage a pattern of thinking that they may not have intuitively or instinctively reflexively engaged in. And that's one of the ways that you do that. Because when you're talking about the dependent stance, one of the aspects that gets missed is the orientation to time. And I talk about the orientation to time in the book for each stance. 
and they are their orientation to time is the present. And so they're very in tune with what's happening right now. But when you begin to ask questions about what happened in the past to people in that stance, that gives them a little bit of clarity about how they're interpreting what happened now. And it's really, how can we uh, encourage you to go back and look at the past in a way that might be constructive for helping you interpret in this present moment? Uh, for the dependent stance, is there, and this may be too big of a question, because I know that there are uh, three types, you know, very, very wide and different and stuff. But is there like a deal breaker, like for the dependent stance? Like, hey, if you do this, like you are going to seriously undermine your ability to communicate effectively to that particular stance. Um, you know, that's a great question. And I'm not entirely sure. Um, I do know this, at least in corporate training, um, civil workers training and church, where I do most of my work in those three areas. For instance, for folks who are doing dominant, um, if you just give a bunch of feeling, like they're going to dismiss you over time. Um, a, a friend of mine for years preached a very small church and he actually got complaints that in his sermons, he never cried. He never got emotional. And what that tells me is that he's probably feeling repressed. But I want to hear the criticism that there are, not, there are some people in his congregation for whom his explanation of what the Christian faith is was to some degree inauthentic because he wasn't emotional about it, right? And so what happens over time, not in a single message, not a single speech or in a classroom or in a sermon at a conference, like you won't lose them in one instance, but you will lose people over time if you don't engage all of the intelligence centers. Hmm. Yeah. And that, uh, that leads us into the aggressive stance and, um, one of the things that you mention in there is for the aggressive stance, you know, very emotionally repressed. We don't have a, uh, a natural good handle on our emotional vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you're communicating like that, how do you, or what does it look like for you to introduce that emotional vocabulary to the audience and to the people who you're speaking to? And this is really tricky because I'm a three on the Enneagram, <laughs> but I'm a three with a four wing and it's a pretty big wing. Um, but I'm, feeling repressed. And what that means is that um, I feel everything, but I don't use feelings to make decisions or move forward. But I'm a three with a four wing, which means that all of the things that make me a three, I feel really badly about because of my four wing, <laughs> right? Um, that I feel like it should be, it should be differently. And it's actually one of the, this is not to like pump me up, but um, just in the Enneagram uh, training that I've had, it's actually one of the hardest places to be. So um, for those of us who are feeling repressed, the question then becomes when we are crafting messages, not what do we want people to do or think, but what do we want people to feel? So I've got a great coworker named Wayne and he's also a three. And he's in charge of a number of large projects that we do. And he begins, and he's a three. This is the way he's trained himself. 
right? He begins with the teams that he's worked on by asking the question, when this is over, what do we want people to feel? And so he doesn't have to feel that himself, but there is a discipline that comes with acknowledging that feelings are a reality in the world that we should consider. There's three sevens and eights, those people, all of us in the aggressive stance. Like we can run over people and not even know that we've come close to running over people. Because we show up, this needs to be done, this is what we think, let's move on. I had a coworker tell me about four months ago um, that she thought that I was not particularly sensitive to the way that she felt. And I couldn't think of even 10 interactions that we've had over the last three or four years. Like, how have I done that, right? But I know because I'm a three, like I am prone to it. Unless I'm attuning myself to the reality that other people think and feel about feelings differently than I do. Because I am very clinical about life and feelings. And other people aren't. I'm the kind of person, and all of us, three, sevens, and eights in the aggressive stance, when people say, ask questions, or, well, how do you feel about that? We're kind of in the back of our heads saying, that's not a feeling question, that's a thinking question. Why are you asking me how I feel about a thinking thing, right? <laughs> like, it makes no sense to yeah. us. Um, but other people aren't wired that way. That feelings come much more naturally and are much stronger for other people. Um, I have so many good friends who are fours. My oldest daughter is a four and feelings are so dominant for them that they can't do something um, based on the feeling. And I'm like a three, that's ridiculous. Do what you have to do. Your feelings don't matter. You know, like, like I'm the person, first person that jumps up and say, feelings aren't facts, right? Um, but if I wanna be a successful and effective communicator, I've got to live in that world, both in the preparation of what I'm communicating and in the delivery of what I'm communicating. Mm. What helps you do that? Um, actually, it, what really helps me do that is not writing messages in isolation. Like I'm much better of a writer for people if that's done um, at a coffee shop or in my office when other people are there, when I can see the faces of people and I can get out of the idea of what do I want people to do or think when I step outside of myself and ask, you know, if you sit in a coffee shop and you say like, what would this person who's sitting at a table, two or three tables away from me, um, who may or may not know the Lord, like, what do they feel about this? What objections might they raise? Like, how could I engage their emotional world and their lived experience, their felt experience about this? Because as a three, like, I'm very good with the emotion. I know what people are feeling. Um, I just need to have a way of engaging that in some sense that acknowledges and honors those feelings. What helps you, um, like, uh, Im kind of, I don't know if embody those feelings is the right word for it, but like, cause I, cause I can get it like in my head, but like communicating that feeling to people, what helps you with that? Like whenever you're on stage. 
Yeah, so um, here's my, the last words I say to myself before I speak to any group, regardless of whether that's a religious group or a secular group. The last words I tell myself are be here now. Like, I just want, like, forget what's on the page or what I'm trying to communicate. Like, usually by that point, it's pretty much ingrained in my spirit. And I say, like, just be here. That allows me to look people in the eye. That allows me to feel what they feel. Because I am a three, so I do feel the room. And to be okay with it. And I also say, like, before you write a message, like, spend time with people. Like, hear their stories. Um, know what's going on with you. When you're writing a message, like, think about the folks who are going to receive it and where they are right now in the world and how um, to communicate to them, that to them emotionally, not just in terms of, here's what I want you to do or here's what I want you to think, but how do we engage the emotions? And when I allow myself to be in the moment, my own emotional world is much more open to what's happening in the room and in the moment. Another thing that you talk about, uh, especially for the, uh, for the aggressive types or for the aggressive stances is vulnerability as well. And can you talk about like what, what vulnerability, um, I don't know, maybe needs to look like for, for those types who are communicating? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what it needs to look like, mm -hmm. but um, for aggressive stance people, what we need more than anything is reassurance that we are safe in this space um, to be who we are, to show up as we are, regardless of what that is in the moment. And so that takes so much courage. The courage to just be here now as a human being and trust that whatever preparation went into um, getting to this moment, that you are safe and the most important thing you can do is be present for your community, for your hearers. Another thing that I want to ask you about real quick, and uh, and then we'll move on to the final stance, is you talk about the importance of storytelling as mm -hmm. well. And mm -hmm. I I always love uh, hearing from people, what, what helps you tell better stories? Um, I just believe in the power of storytelling to change the world. And so the backbone of my teaching and speaking and work is storytelling. Because what I'm trying to do in storytelling is help people see their story and my story and stories of other people. Because that gives both permission for other people to say, uh, oh yeah, like that's something that I've experienced. And it makes our stories normal and exhausts them. Um, the problem, the reason most people don't tell their story is because they think it's going to be dismissed. And as storytellers, what we give people is the opportunity to say, I have been there, I know what that's like. Um, you know, the, the basic of pre, the basic 
premise of all preaching, right? Is this is like that. Like you open the scriptures and like there, there's an event that happened. And now I'm going to tell you about how your life is like this thing that happened and the, the principles or the guidance you need to navigate this part of your life, because this has happened and this is how you, how we should handle it. And so I want to make our stories, um, a normal part of thing. And that's how people change. Like we change through stories. We engage in stories. We see our lives and the lives of other people through stories. And so storytelling for me becomes the avenue by which transformation occurs. We see our stories and the stories of others who have gone before us. Okay. So last, last stance, the withdrawing stance. And one of the things that, um, just as I was going through your book that, um, that in some ways, at least to me, this sounded like maybe, uh, and I guess it, it probably just depends, but I think the mo- one of the most challenging pieces of this is this is the 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 withdrawing stance. So they're moving away from people, and you say, um, you know, they uh, sometimes they can be resistant to the motivations of the speaker, and and I would just love your thoughts on how do you communicate to a group of people and to someone who is almost naturally resistant to the motivations of, of what you're talking about. Right. So, um, you know, with withdrawing stances, um, one of the things I think I talk about in the book is, um, purpose, right? One of the things that they have to have to engage is purpose. And if you can't make clear an overarching, um, powerful, motivating, inspiring purpose, you'll lose them because they are um, doing repress. And so when they engage in something, it has to be worth engaging for them. It has to be powerful and um, the kind of thing that they would give their time and energy to. Without those things, like they are going to basically check out on you, right? <laughs> like, um, because what costs them energy is doing something, but when they find something worth doing, they're all in it. Like they are all for it. So you can't come with a thousand things to do over court. And churches do this, right? Like every week we've got a new volunteer opportunity that you need to engage in. Well, they're just not going to do that. Like, that's just not a powerful enough purpose for them. Um, So we got to make those calls to action clear and powerful and motivating. What helps you do that in your communication? Well, one is not over asking. Like, and acknowledging that not everything is everyone's to do. Um, You know, one of the places where churches really struggle is that we ask so much of our people all of the time. And what that means is that they are fatigued by all of the requests when we should say, these are the things that are really core. These are the things that are really essential. And here's why. I'm going to tell you why this is more important than other things that you're asked to do. And I want to invite you into that in a way that's compelling. And if I don't do that, like I really don't have 
the right and the option to make you feel badly or guilty about not doing something because that's not compelling enough. So when I'm, when I'm teaching, um, clear call to actions are really good for people who are doing dominant, but you gotta talk about why this is important, not for the world or for the community or for the church, but for people individually, because that's how we live. This is how you make your world better and give yourself and the world meaning, direction, and purpose. Hmm. What else is? Uh, what else it, should we keep in mind as we're trying to engage uh, doing repressed uh, people? I think one of the things for doing repressed people that's really important is that everyone is fatigued. Like we are all asked to do a lot all the time and no one can do all of that. Like people have spouses and kids and work and volunteering opportunities. And like, you know, even tonight, like I will be at a multiple different meetings for multiple kids. <laughs> you know? I don't they're doing I'm like, oh, like what if we scaled back? Like my, my friend Richard Beck talked about this. Um, why preachers can't get their church to churches to do anything so this is a talk that he gave i heard about five years ago um and he said people are tired i mean that was the that was, that was the big off yeah. the whole thing it's like people are tired they're we're asked to do a lot all the time and folks in our churches and they think about church an hour before they come and 30 minutes after they leave and so I think church leaders need to do a better job at refining our individual mission as churches and focusing people on what absolutely needs to happen in our communities and in our world and get rid of this smorgasbord, this buffet of doing everything all of the time and just working our people to death because it will fall on deaf ears after a while. So what does that look like for you? You know, someone who's communicating, you know, on, on a weekly basis and, um, you know, probably a lot of your messages, you, you are at least in some form asking someone to do something. And so how do you, how do you reconcile, uh, both of those mm -hmm. things or what helps you with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. We're in a series right now where we're inviting everyone in our community, in our community to be part of a, uh, what we call living the story, small group. And so we're saying, like, we want you to, to do this thing. Um, and I'm only going to do that. Um, we're only going to do that about once a year, where we're going to invite everyone to be a part of something. There are plenty of things that we do um, that we're going to make um, offerings for. And we use that language, invitation. Um, but we're not going to make people feel badly if they choose to opt out of them. Um, we're not going to say that you're a bad Christian if you can't do everything that we put on the calendar. Um, so the, one of the ways that I weigh all of that is like, what is most important for the spiritual development of the community versus, hey, these are some things that we're doing that we like, we really need help in the children's ministry. So we're going to turn mm -hmm. the screws on you. Like, we're not going to do that. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, We'll figure out alternative ways to make the organization run that don't rely on us um, 
making people feel particularly guilty about not doing everything that they could do in the community. Hmm. Yeah, just just as I'm listening to you, like just what came to my mind is like you're setting the context for for everything. It seems like just in this entire uh this entire conversation and everything in communicating to helping people understand um or I guess even to go back to the beginning to help them hear, to help them hear what you're saying by adding the context around everything that you're communicating. Yeah. Well, we hope, like I would hope that that's the case. Um, and you know, like none of this is like, we don't have any of this locked down. I don't have any of this locked down a hundred percent. Like it is something that I'm navigating as we go mm-hmm. and we get some of it right. We get some of it wrong. We're always learning. And what's central to me and what I was trying to do in the book, really, is reframe how communicators go about their business in terms of putting the hearer before the speaker. Now, one one of the things that I think that you talk about that is so powerful in the book is you talk about um, choosing choosing the right messenger for Mm -hmm. who's giving the messages as Mm -hmm. well. Um, and you know, depending on what type of message they're given, um, can you walk us through kind of what that process has looked like for you of like determining when someone is going to give a message or what message they should give? Yeah. So one of the ways we have tried to address it is when we sit down and we look at a series, for instance, that's coming up and we'll say like, just who not only has the most credibility, but who can the congregation hear? on this particular aspect. So because I work at a congregation where the founding pastor is, uh, is our lead pastor, um, any, I hardly ever make big calls to action for the whole congregation. Like that comes from him. That's partly because it's the way that he's wired and because of his unique role in that system. Um, my stuff, my content is typically much more around um, how we, how are we going to think about this? I'm the person who typically does unpacking of big theological content. And so we kind of weave that together as we go. And we have guest speakers come in. We think like there's no one who's outside of our community that can invite our community to do something. They just don't know us that well. Um, And so when I'm you know, there's an organization I work with that does some racial justice work. And in those contexts, um, I do a lot of the feeling work when I'm working with local Texas mayors, um, chiefs of staff, city managers. Like I want to help them understand what it is like, what the, the lived experience of people in their community. And so just to sit down and say, who are our communicators that our group hears from regularly and who's best situated to deliver a message about thinking, feeling, and doing, and then making sure that throughout this, this process, whether it's four weeks or six weeks, that we are, like, we're hammering down on that and the right people are delivering the right messages. So Chris C, who is our founding pastor, pastor here, like he's the person who says, this is what we're gonna do. This is what we need you to do. This is how you do it. And then typically I'll follow up like the next week here's how we're thinking about this, right? Um, And here's how we feel about this. Here's 
um, some data. Here are some stories that might help you wrap your arms around why we're doing the thing that he invited us into um, the first week. Uh, just as we're wrapping up, I would love just your thoughts on, uh, you know, just general, like good communication do's and don'ts that you've just learned or picked up throughout the years that it's like, yeah, you should probably pay attention to this or don't do this. <laughs> well, that's a great question. I probably have a long list. Um, and I work with this with my, my speaking clients a lot, like do's and don'ts. And most of the time that is customized to their own particular experience. Um, here are some things generally I would say. Do write your sermons, your messages, especially if you're young. You don't have to deliver a manuscript, but if you write a manuscript, that will give you clarity in your own thinking and your own writing. Um, don't try to be funny if you're not a funny person. Um, it will end badly for you. You will say something trying to be funny and it'll be offensive or it'll be off color. There's nothing wrong with a stock joke, kind of like those old Reader's Digest jokes. Um, if you are not a funny person, like if you don't normally hear people laugh at the things that you say, like in the course of conversation, like you're not a funny person and that's not a sin. You should not try to be funny extemporaneously in a sermon. Um, do, if you, if you are young, especially if you're a young preacher, um, stick to the text and tr trust the text. If you're a young preacher, don't try to do topical sermons. Like you're going to look foolish every time. Do remember also that whatever you're talking about in a message, there's someone in your congregation who knows more about that than you. So if you're using an illustration about pilots or doctors or, you know, whatever it is, there's someone in your church who probably knows more about that than you do. And you don't want to be made a fool of when they pull you aside or they send you an email and say, like, actually, this is the, the reality about that. Um, do listen to criticism. All of it. Don't lose heart. Um, people that you're listening to, people who are listening to you actually do have some formative things to say to you about both the content and the delivery of your messages. You're not too big for it. You're not too mature for it. You're not too experienced for it. They're the ones listening to you and they have something to say. Do make sure that your sermon series are not too long. Um, People have about a six to eight weeks at the most attention span for your thing. If you want to walk through the book of Acts, do eight weeks and come back and do something else and bring Acts back later on in the year. Um, like, we get it. Do, uh, do not try to be the smartest person in the room because you're not. And people resent it. <laughs> um, be honest with yourself and with others. And remember, this will be the last thing I say, remember, there's always next week. <laughs> like the Lord can return at any time, but so far that hasn't happened.
So far, that's had, that hasn't happened. Uh, and there's always next week. So if you've got more to say, get to say it next week. Yeah. Uh, well, just as uh, we're wrapping up, uh, is there anything that we haven't covered, you know, about communication, Enneagram, anything that like that, that is just top of mind that you want to make sure that we cover? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, the, the main thing for me, I think one of the reasons I wrote the book was just this simple idea of centering the hearer rather than the speaker. And I think the Enneagram helps us do that. Awesome. Well, Sean, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. If people want to, you know, keep up with you, get the book, all that stuff, where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? The best place for everything is just to go to seanisaacpalmer.com. Um, Isaac is spelled I-S-A-A-C because I've had people get tripped up on that, but S-E-A-N-I-S-A-A-C-P-A-L-M-E-R.com and all the stuff is there. So it's, an, it's a great way, easy way to connect with me right there. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast and thanks for just doing the work. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Okay. So I think coming out of that conversation, here's a couple of things that really stand out to me. The first one was um, just what he talked about of having the hearer, having the listener be at the center of the message and not putting ourselves at, um, at the center of the communication process and realizing that it's, that it's more important for the listener to, to understand what we're trying to say than how we look or how, whether, you know, as we mentioned towards the interview of how, how, or whether or not we look good or whether or not we sound good. And or we sound smart or we sound sophisticated or, or however we sound. And so I think for me, that's, that's one of the big takeaways from it. The other thing, and I guess similar to it, is uh, just the level of intentionality that this requires of it. Because, you know, for me, being an Enneagram type of three, uh, and, you know, talked a little bit about it in the, in the interview, but uh, emotions do not come naturally to me like it does take a lot more work for me to engage myself um emotionally and sometimes i wish that wasn't the case and uh <laughs> and uh and too often it is but i think for me that has been one of the things that i am trying to learn right now of of how to expand my vote or my emotional vocabulary um and and helping maybe define that for other people as well in, in defining terms of um of emotions or what we're experiencing and getting very clear on that and i think the the other thing um that he mentioned and this is you know more for the with the withdrawing of um of just being very clear about what we're asking for and uh and and not asking for too much you know so interesting you know he said you know everybody was fatigued um and when he mentioned that message and that was you know five years ago and uh, quite a lot has happened in the last five years and uh, people have probably only gotten more tired on that and i think the last thing is just the importance of adding the context to to everything around it letting people know hey we we know that you're tired 
Uh, however, this is incredibly important to your own spiritual development. And I think it just ties back to even more of the putting the hearer at the center of your message and making sure um, that, and again, I'm, I guess some of these thoughts are just coming to me, but I guess making sure that the hearer, that it does benefit the hearer, that the, that the message just somehow benefit the hearer or it benefits the community of which they're, they're, they're a part of or helps them grow spiritually or helps in their spiritual development. Um, yeah, either, either way, I uh, highly recommend this book and uh, it's going to be very helpful for you if you're a communicator. And even if you're like, okay, even if you find yourself like, I don't really give messages very much or I don't really speak to groups of people very much. Here's why I think it's going to be helpful because we're, we're still interacting with people who, you know, are, you know, maybe, you know, in my case, feeling repressed or thinking repressed or doing repressed and they're, and they might be thinking dominant, feeling dominant, doing dominant, whatever it is. Like whether or not we're communicating with them across the table or we're communicating them uh, in in a group of people, these dynamics still play out. And I think it's still helpful for us to understand and learn about these communications things, uh, no matter where we find ourselves communicating. So with that, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know, you know, if there's other things that you're interested in learning about here on the podcast or hearing from, hit me up on learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com you know, leave a five-star rating, subscribe to the podcast, all of that good stuff. If you enjoyed this, you know, check out the newsletter that I have and the blog to where I just keep sharing some of the things and some of the best things that I am learning from. I want to curate the best for you because learning takes time. And in some cases it can be very expensive as well. And I want to save you that time and save you that money as well. So check out that subscribe to the newsletter, all of that good stuff. That's all that I have for you today. I do want to say actually a real quick thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for the podcast. Thanks to Sean for being on the podcast as well. We'll link to uh, his previous episode in the show notes. And yeah, I think that's all for today. My name is Caleb Mason. Oh, and I almost forgot. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the show. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.